chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you're using the little turn the chairs, the seminal 4, Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is part 2 uh, of the sermon we started last week. Uh, <clears throat> we as we, look, uh, as we have been looking at the church of Thessalonica, uh, <clears throat> we see that Paul here is, is using Thessalonica somewhat as a, as, a, as a template or a pattern, if you would, to the New Testament church to not only help us to understand what a New Testament church is supposed to look like, but also for them... Uh, to hold strong in the faith. <clears throat> because at this particular time, uh, they were under severe persecution. Uh, they, they were going through some very, very difficult times. And we talked about this last week. Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians several adjectives to uh, describe some of the things that they were going through. One of them, uh, we see the word affliction in, in chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 3, verse 3, he uses the word affliction. In other words, the, the pressure of the circumstances, the, the things in life were closing in on them and, the, and to the point where Paul called it affliction. Another word that he used in chapter 2, verse 14 is the word suffer. It's the same word that's used to describe the suffering that Jesus Christ went through. That's the kind of situation that these believers were in they were not only afflicted but they were suffering in chapter 2 verse 15 the word persecuted is used it is uh, also in that verse the word contrary in other words the, the, the word contrary means that the winds that blow against something to hinder the progress everything was working against them but they were continuing on. Another word is we see in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, is the word hindered, or, or th something has been put in their way to stop them. These believers were continuing on, but it just seemed like everything was closing in on them. And in verse uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, <clears throat> verse 19, he says this, he said, For what is our hope? And or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming for ye are our glory and joy see <clears throat> the reality is this we can have joy in the midst of all of that and that's what Paul's trying to remind the, the Thessalonian believers you know what this stuff is going on, but God is greater than all of the stuff. In John, uh, excuse me, First John chapter one verse four, it says, "And these things are written uh, unto you that your joy may be full." God's desire is that we live in victory and that our joy be full. If our if our joy is tied to our circumstances then we'll never be happy. But if our joy is tied to Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter what's going on around us. 
That is the big reminder. That's the big takeaway here in the in the book of uh, Thessalonians, at, at least in chapter two, that Paul's trying to communicate. So, in case you weren't here, I'm going to very quickly kind of go through the main points of last week, part part A, part one of the two part series uh, sermon here. Uh, <clears throat> number one uh, that we talked about last week is the Word of God. First, they valued the word of God. In verse 13, it says, Ye received it not as the word of, me- word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God. See, they understood the fact that, that, that this book <clears throat> doesn't come from the traditions of men, but from the word of God. I found out recently, and this is not in my notes, this is a free commercial here, I found out recently that the, the that the Mormons teach that parts of this book is accurate. They they say that that through through the traditions of men it has been contaminated. Well, I'm here to tell you if that is the God that you serve, he's not a very strong God, is he? That he cannot preserve his word. How very sad that they that they trust in a God that can't even preserve his word for, and the Bible says from generation to generation. They valued the word of God. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of, of the scripture <clears throat> is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is not a book of men. This is a book of God. What you hold in your hand is the precious word of God. Not the traditions of men. Number one, they valued the word of God. Number two, they embraced the word of God. Verse 13, we see it. We see in verse 13, the word received used twice there. The first time it was, it's re- the word received means is to accept it from somebody. The second time it's used, it means to welcome or to embrace it. So in other words, the first, the first one is used that they first, they heard it with their ears, and then they heard the word of God with their hearts. And that's the key. They believed it with their hearts. And then the third thing that we talked about, not only did they value it, embrace it, but they applied the word of God. Again, in verse 13, it says, The word of God, which effectually worketh also in you. The key word there is in. In you that believe. The word of God made a difference in their lives. And if the word of God is not making a difference in your life, then you need to go back and reevaluate your priorities. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and uh, of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner in the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It is the word of God that digs down deep. Chances are really good, unless I say something inappropriate. If you come to church... And you leave mad, again, unless I say something inappropriate, 
That is the word of God digging into you. That's not me. Now, occasionally I will say something stupid and I'm human, okay? But most of the time, it's the word of God digging down deep, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. So, number one, the Word of God. Number two, we're going to talk about this morning. The people around us. The people around us. Let's look at verse 14 of chapter 2. For ye brethren came, <clears throat> became uh, followers of the, church, the churches of God, which in uh, Judea are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things in your own country of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their prophets, and have persecuted us, and they uh, please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved and filled up their sins always for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost let's pray dear lord thank you again for this day thank you for your love and lord help us this morning to see how important it is to surround ourselves with the right kind of people for it's in christ's name we pray amen the longer that I'm a pastor, the more I see that when people are hurt, they tend to withdraw. And <clears throat> the reality is, we all go through difficult seasons, do we not? Uh, If you are not in the midst of one, then you just had one, or one's coming. It's just, it's part of life. Difficulties come. And when difficulties come, we, as human beings, tend to withdraw. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that that's wrong. But God is. As a pastor, I can stand up here all day long and tell you, don't do that. That's not healthy to withdraw. But I'm here to tell you the Word of God tells us not to do that. And that is, I believe, exactly what Paul's trying to communicate here. <clears throat> Paul, you know, the, Paul, the, the, the church of Thessalonica is going through some very, very difficult things. And it's very, very easy as a church when the, the, the church is going through very difficult times for the church to withdraw and, and turn within itself. Just as people do. Loneliness is a bad place to be.
Dr. Nikolai, a professor of philosophy at Harvard Medical School, explained that Sigmund Freud died at the age of 83 in a bitter and disillusioned man. Tragically, the Viennese physician, one of the most influential thinkers of his time, had little compassion for common people. Freud wrote in 1918, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or to none at all. Freud died friendless. It is well documented and well known that he had broken with each of his followers and died in a state of bitterness. Loneliness can do terrible things to people. In verse 14, we read, it says, "And For, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. <clears throat> they were getting it from all sides. They were getting it from the Jews, and they were getting it from their own countrymen. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 17, we see that the, Jew, the Jewish leadership was, 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 it was known that that the Jewish leadership would instigate problems in the community uh, among the Gentiles to to raise up conflict within the church. Uh, And I'm here to tell you, nothing has changed. Satan does the same thing. Lies, deceit, whatever he can do to bring pressure to the church. In Acts chapter 17, verse 3, it says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached. Did you see that? When people were getting saved and lives were being changed. Of Paul and Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. Now, I'm here to tell you something And I hope you get this. Number one, if the church, if a church is not under some sort of pressure, persecution, whatever, then they're not doing something right. If a church is doing the right thing, there's going to be people in the community that don't like it. Just saying. If a church is skating through and and, and seemingly no problems, guess what? They're not preaching the word. And the the same truth goes for your life. One of the ways that we know that we are doing the right thing is, is when there's opposition in our lives. Jesus warned believers about this in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, 
but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I'm not telling you to go around looking for trouble. That's not what I'm talking about. Trouble will come to you. If you're going, if you do right, trouble will find you. Paul makes an interesting statement in verse 15. And and I want to I want to kind of clarify it because it, it can it could it, it, the, the statement he makes can almost sound as though it is anti-Semitic. Okay, look at verse 15. Now that was <laughs> which a lot of people in this world. Now, let, let me say this before I do anything. Anything that is anti-Semitic, anything that is anti-human. I don't care what it is, is wrong. Christ died for all men, okay? But the, the, but the, the, the crazy anti-Semitic people out there will use this verse to, to twist it and take it out of context. Paul was a Jew. How could he be anti-Semitic? Just saying, okay? But Paul says in verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets. Now, <clears throat> is that an anti-Semitic statement? No. That is a historical statement. He was just quoting history. Now, let me give you some historical facts. Number one, the Jewish leadership pushed for the execution of Jesus Christ. It was the leadership that pushed, not the people. No, nowhere do you see uh, the, the vast majority of people pushing for the execution of Jesus Christ. It was the leadership. It was the Romans that held the trial. It was the Romans that administered the scourging. It was the Romans that administered <clears throat> the uh, humiliation of Jesus Christ by planting the crown of thorns and spitting in his face. It was the Romans that did all that. <clears throat> it was the Romans that crucified Christ. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does it accuse or lay blame at the feet of the nation of Israel for the death of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does it accuse or lay blame for Rome for the death of Jesus Christ. Say, but wait a minute, you just said let me help you here with a very, very important truth. Nobody killed Jesus Christ. He gave his life. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Where, whereby <clears throat> perceive we 
the love of God because he what? Laid down his life. Could he not, laying on that cross as the nails were being put into his hands, could he not have called a legion of angels to take him off that cross? Absolutely he could have. But he didn't. Let me give you another theological truth that is absolutely critical that you understand. If anyone is to blame for the death of Jesus Christ, it's you and me. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we, all we, every person that's ever been born, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have <clears throat> turned everyone from his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of what? Of us all. It was, <clears throat> it was our sin that drove Jesus Christ to the cross. I have another question for you. Why did the Jewish leadership reject Christ? Did not he, did not he fulfill every prophecy that the Bible had? Absolutely he did. But see, the, the reason why the Jews the, or the Jewish leadership rejected Jesus Christ is because by rejecting him, <clears throat> they were able to protect their man-made religion and control the people. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Is that not what religion is? A man-made organization that controls people? Even today, we see it. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, it says, Then came together, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and then came together unto him the Pharisees and the certain of the scribes, which came also from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with uh, defiled, that is to say, with unwashed washing hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of the cup and pots and basin vessels and of the tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why walk ye not? Uh, why walk not thy disciples according to the traditions of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said unto them, <clears throat> Well, hath Elias, Elias or Elisha um, prophesied uh, of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching 
for doctrines that uh, commandments of men, for laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the traditions of men, and the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things do ye do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. We often are more concerned with making sure our kids wash their hands before they eat than we are that they read their Bibles before they go to bed. We're more concerned of washing the dishes and making sure everything is sanitized than we are that our Bible, that our kids learn their Bible verses and memorize the Word of God. Shame on us. And we say, we say, well, <clears throat> I'm not a religious person, and I, I hope and pray to, to Almighty God that I never become religious because I hate religion. But oftentimes we play the game just like the Pharisees. And we get so consumed with the traditions of men and then the things of God be put away. With the coronavirus and all the stuff going on without it, it's easy to see people are in in an absolute panic. But in reality, what do they need more? They need the Word of God. And I'm telling you, I don't know about our church. I hope nobody in our church did this. But I can guarantee you there are people in America today who did not go to church today because they're scared of, the, of a virus. And they will forfeit the power of the Word of God in their lives. Now, I'm not talking about being stupid and ignorant. That's not what I'm talking about. I think you understand what I'm saying. In verses 14 to 16, Paul is trying to get the believers of Thessalonica to understand that the fight is real. The pressures of life are real, but they're not alone in the fight. Because when persecution comes, and the struggles of life come, and the problems come, too often we withdraw, and we feel alone. When in reality, what we should be doing is going forward and getting out and not being alone. Disappointment and trouble will come. But what you do when it comes will determine the outcome that you experience. That's why I called this point the people around us. The people around us can and will make a huge difference in our lives. I believe that one of the greatest assets 
of the local church is this very principle, the people around us. Let's look at the life of Elijah for a second and see how all this played out in his life. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was <clears throat> uh, of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, here we have Elijah coming on the scene, and he goes to the king and makes an incredible proclamation. There will be no rain on the earth until I say so. Now, I don't know about you, but that's bold. I mean, that, that is incredible. Then, <clears throat> shortly after, he makes this proclamation because now the king's mad. So God says, okay, Elijah, go to the brook Cherith. So Elijah makes his way to a very uh, uh, a place of solitude. And he lives there. And, and those of you that know the story know that, the, that the, uh, God commanded the ravens to, to bring food to Elijah. So here he is. He's at the brook Cherith. Excuse me. And in First uh, Kings chapter 17, verse 5, it says, So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. So he, he stays there for we don't know how long, and every day, <clears throat> twice a day, the ravens would come and bring him food. Now guess what? He's all alone. Then what happens? Because of the drought, the, the brook dries up. And, and, and I, I, can, I can just imagine Elijah being there all by himself and <clears throat> every day the brook getting narrower and narrower and narrower until it's down to a trickle. Wondering, okay, God, what's going to happen next? So God sends him <clears throat> away from the brook Cherith after, after it all dries up. God says, okay, now I want you to go live with a widow and her son. So he makes the journey into the land of the enemy, I guess you would say. And he ends up living there with a widow and her son. Now, we don't know this, but I, I, I can assume that because he was living with a widow and, a son, and her son, he probably spent a lot of time by himself because he's in the land of the enemy. He's not around friends. First Kings chapter 18, verses 37 to 39. God sends... Elijah to Mount Carmel to demonstrate the power of God to defeat the 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 priests of of, of um, Baal. Yes, thank you. 
uh, <clears throat> a big demonstration is going to take place. And, and, and Elijah comes out of hiding and he challenges the priests of Baal. And he says, okay, you guys put up an altar. And, and if your God is real, he'll bring fire down and consume the, 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 the offering on the altar. So the big thing goes on and they dance around and cut themselves and do all kind of crazy things and nothing happens. And Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. What does he do? Not only does he build an altar and put an offering on it, but then he floods it with water multiple times. Verse 18 or verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. Now, let's stop right there. Elijah did not say, hey, <clears throat> hear me, O Lord, hear me, O Lord, so that everyone knows that I'm a prophet of God. That's not what Elijah said. He says that everyone know that thou art the Lord. It wasn't about Elijah, it was about God. And that thou hast turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt, offer, uh, burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they turned their faces and worshipped Elijah. No. And they said, the Lord is, is he is the God, the, the Lord, He is the God. God used Elijah to do great things. I mean, I mean, think about it. At his word, a, a, drought, a three and a half year drought started. And with his word, a three and a half year drought ended. This great miracle on Mount Carmel took place. The fact that he lived by the brook Cherith for who knows how long, being fed by a bird every day, having to live with a, 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 a widow and her son, seeing the miracle of the, of the oil and the, and the, and the um, uh, meal every single day. The meal not running out and the oil not drying up. Every day seeing a miracle after miracle. Three and a half years of miracle after miracle after miracle. But what happens? Elijah sees all this stuff. And some wicked woman makes a threat to him. And he starts to run. In verse 14, excuse me, uh, uh, chapter 19, verse 4. But he went, uh, but, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, now O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father. How do you go from three and a half years, every day a miracle, to this point? 
total depression. I believe, in part, it was because he was by himself. He had isolated himself. And he had, he had allowed <clears throat> the attacks of loneliness to take place in his life. I believe, in part, we see one of the reasons in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. He and God are talking, and this is what God says, Yet have I not left me, have I not left <clears throat> me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. What, it, what, was, what was God saying to Elijah? Elijah, you're not alone. There's 7,000 people in Israel that still have not bowed the knee. 7,000. And if you go back and read the, 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 the next verses, Elijah, after God says this to him, he gets up and he goes and he serves God again. But oftentimes when we withdraw within ourselves, we accomplish little or even nothing for God. We allow bitterness to set in and take, take root in our hearts and our lives. And we, like <clears throat> Elijah, can get into a really, really bad place in our lives. A lonely believer is vulnerable to the attacks of loneliness. Every, every church that I could, that I could find, every, every church in Scripture that could be called a thriving church, they, they all have one thing in common, and that is fellowship. They preach the word and fellowship. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and a breaking of bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Fellowship, preaching of the word and fellowship are critical elements of the local church. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to, to, to remind the Thessalonian believers. Hey, when all of this stuff is going on, don't forget you're part of a family. And you need each other. Let me read you an explanation uh, that I found of the word fellowship, a definition of sorts that I found. I, I, I don't know who to credit for it. I just I found it and forgot to, to write down the, the source that I found it, so please forgive me for that. But this is what it says. It says, the Greek word for fellowship comes from the root word, which means to share. So fellowship means common participation in something either by giving what you have to the other person or receiving 
what he or she has. He goes on to say, give and take is the essential, or, or excuse me, is the essence of fellowship. Now, I'm going to repeat this because <clears throat> I want you to get this. Give and take is the essence of fellowship. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play pastor here for a minute. I cannot tell you how many people at our church have made this statement. But pastor, I don't want to receive anything. My job is to give. Now, let, let me ask you a stupid question. If everybody gave, who would receive? The reality is this. We all go through seasons when it is our job to give. Is it not true? If that is a true statement, then the next statement I'm about to say is just as true. We all go through seasons that is our job to receive. But, but, but Pastor, I, I, I can't do that. You need to. Because of this. If it is your job then to receive, it is that season in your life, and you deny another person the ability to give, what are you doing? Talk to me. You're robbing them of a blessing. Press down, shaken together, and men shall give to your bosom. How does God bless people? Through other people. And way too often, when the difficulties come, we end up withdrawing ourselves away from the very people God gave us to help us. Do you see the logic? We need each other. Hebrews chapter 10 well, I'm sorry, I didn't finish my quote here. Give and take is the essence of fellowship, and give and take must, by the way, of uh, 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 fellowship, excuse me, must be the way of fellowship in the common life of the body of Christ. It has to be central in the body of Christ, or in this case, the local church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another. What do you think that means? Let us consider one another. Pray for, think about. To provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, unless you're having a hard time. Then, if you're having a hard time, then you can forsake the assembling. No. 
It's, it's not optional. The word not there is a command. Not forsaking the assembly. If anything, when you think you don't need it is when you need it the most. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a matter of some is but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer we get to the coming of Christ, the more we need each other. We need, our, we need each other more today than we did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. The people around us will make all the difference in our lives. So let me close with this question. Who have you surrounded yourself with? See, that's the key. You show me your friends and I can show you your future. Who have you surrounded yourself with? Have you surrounded yourself with the people of the world, the things of the world, or the things of God? Number one, the word of God. Number two, the people around us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you.